It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you into the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, May twenty eighth, two thousand and fifteen. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, joins me. Welcome back, Dan. Jacob, great to be with you. I missed you last week. Looking forward to our study tonight. We we were talking a little earlier, Jacob. March or uh, May has been kind of a a weird month for the virtual Bible study. Yeah, uh, this uh, we we were we we did a best of program on the first week. Second week yeah. we had a uh, emergency crop up right in the right as the program was starting when your your son got his head split open. Yeah. Uh, last week I was gone, and this is the first week really this month that we've had a normal. Gathering here, at and the it's, Bible study. A, you know, it's the first time in May, and it's well, we were cutting it right to the end. The yeah. last Thursday in May. Hopefully, this one will be a normal one. I hope so. I look forward to the discussion tonight. The way you can uh, participate is by calling eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Email questions at collegeview.com or joining the chat room with our listeners tonight. If you're watching us live, appreciate you joining us on the program tonight. And if you're listening to us in the podcast, you can still participate. Questions at collegeview.com is on twenty four seven. We welcome your comments at any time, and we especially would like those suggestions for future editions of the Virtual Bible Study or questions you might like answered in a either on an open forum night at, or uh, maybe we could spend a whole hour talking about your questions. So send in those questions or suggestions to questions at collegeview.com. I'm still looking forward to that one that I saw in the inbox last Thursday from Chris. On the bull riding preacher, yeah. bull riding in services. Now that yeah. that's one I, I wish we could talk to him. Yeah. Um, well, I tell you what, Jacob, I have had contact with the Cowboy Church pastor here in Columbia, Tennessee, and he has agreed to tentatively agreed to talk with us in, in the next couple of months. All right, but he's not riding bulls in the services. I don't. Think. I don't think so. Yeah, this guy's riding the bulls in the service. Yeah. But, you know, that is a growing thing, Cowboy Church. So we're going to try to do a program on Cowboy Church movement. All right. But tonight we're doing something different, something that I think is really important. <clears throat> and this is sort of an outcropping of the interview we had two weeks ago. Right. Two weeks ago we talked to Ken Collins, who's a uh, Disciples of, of Christ preacher up in yeah. the Washington, D.C. Right. area. We were talking with him about baptism specifically. Yeah, I listened to that one in the podcast. That, that was, was the, the night, night that, that Micah I got, got called, his head. I got expedited somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, you spent that night in the emergency room. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, throughout the discussion we had with him, and, uh, and it was a sort of a disjointed thing because of all the hectic stuff going on around here, But and I apologize for that. But uh, in the course of talking with him, he was constantly referring to the early church fathers. Yes. You know, when we would say, well, what about this? Why do you do that? What's your authority for that? He would quote early church fathers. Right. This was the practice of the early church as is as is proven by what was written by the early church fathers. Right. So uh, that provoked me to want to spend some time on the virtual Bible study talking about these so-called early church fathers. What can we learn from them? Who are they? What did they do? And, and what benefit might we gain from their work? But also, 
what problem might be generated by using them as a source okay. as well. Okay. So that's the question we sent out to our uh, update list earlier today. Um, again, we always tell you that if you're not getting our weekly updates, you can be on our mailing list by simply sending us an email to questions at collegeview.com and just put in the subject line, add me to the list. You'll get two emails a week, and that's it. Thursday, we send out, about noon on Thursday, we send out an, an update about what our topic is going to be for discussion on Thursday night. And then on Tuesday of every week, we send out an email edition of our weekly church bulletin here at right. College Street. So two, we're not going to flood your inbox. You get two emails a week from us, and you can delete them. If you want to, you don't even have to read them. You don't even have to read them, but you can. But we hope that they're. Yeah, yeah, you might as well read them. Yeah. yeah, But anyway, to our update list today, we sent out this question. Pretty simple. Concerning the writings of the early church fathers, number one, how can we use these in a positive way? And number two, what potential dangers exist by overemphasis on their writings? Okay. Early church fathers. Yeah, and then we got a topic that we might cover just in the last segment of our program tonight, Jay. We'll just put a little tease out there. Uh, we're seeing a, a trend, of, of inc- an increasing trend to have special events, preaching and teaching events for different groups within the church, uh, young peoples, singles, women, and so forth. Uh, and I just thought it'd be something worth discussing. What do you think about that? Uh, is that a good thing? Uh, is there any is there any potential downside to doing all these teen devotional weekends or uh, special ladies studies that sort of thing? So we'll just talk about that a little bit at the end. All right. Well, and uh, we want to talk about that. Right. Is this just a result because you're sort of upset because there aren't any middle aged uh, events? Oh, I'm way past middle aged now. Yeah, they don't they don't have. Old gray-haired men weekends. Yeah, so it's just sort of a little <laughs> yeah. bitterness here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, grumpy. They don't have. They don't have a weekend. Grumpy old men. Grumpy old men weekend. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Well, let's know. We'll talk about that in just a little while. First off, early church fathers. Jeff is behind the board tonight. Uh, Jeff, look forward to hearing from you as well. Jeff has been a part of these special events. He has some thoughts on that. You've been a part of the special events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you've got some thoughts on that. And uh, we'll take some of those thoughts. Well, hang on to that. We'll try to we'll try to program. do that toward the end of the program. Right. Let's let's deal with this church father thing okay. first, Jacob. All right. Church fathers. First of all, we might define who are. What are we talking about when we talk about the early church fathers? Um, I got a I got a a flyer a while back advertising a a new commentary set. Oh, really? And and the and the uniqueness of this commentary set was that they were going to use the writings of early church fathers as the basis for the comments they made about the scriptural text they were analyzing. All right. Uh, uh, the, so this is, a, this is advertised as an unparalleled resource for reading the scriptures, quote, in the light of the early church. Uh, and so uh, what they're going to do, uh, they, they said the... Uh, this this commentary set revives the early tradition known as Glossa Ordinaria, well. a text artfully elaborated with ancient and authoritative reflections and insights. I, I highlighted the word authoritative. In other words, they're taking these writings from uninspired early church authors, and they're making them authoritative. Uh, it goes on to say, material has been gleaned from writings from the 2nd to the 8th century, including comments from well-known early church leaders as well as lesser-known commentators. 
And so that's what the early church writers were. They were uninspired men who wrote in the early days of Christianity, some of them very early, yeah. uh, certainly early second century. Potentially, maybe some were writing in the late first century. Okay. But uh, most of these most of these sources would would talk about men who wrote in the second and third centuries A.D. Okay. In other words, they were in the church uh, in the early days of the church, and uh, they wrote about things. They but they did what we do. You know, when we write, if I sit down to write a bulletin article, I will write it, but I will quote scripture. In order to prove a point, because right. because you know a, a person, an uninspired person writing, might state their opinion, but their opinion really is doesn't matter. Yeah. But if they state a truth and prove it from Scripture that it is the truth, then it then, has authority. Then there's something to go on. Yeah. And so these early church writers did some of that. Some sometimes they expressed their own opinions. Many times they did, in fact. But often they quoted the Scripture. And so uh, they can be seen as a helpful resource because they did. And they also validate the the transmission of the scriptures to us when they're quoted in, in ancient works. Well, we know that if ours says the same thing as theirs said when they were quoting it, then we've got an accurate copy. That's some of the positive uses that we want to elaborate on. But let me mention a few names, Jacob. Um, there was a church council called... In, uh, in 325 A.D., there were some false doctrines, a number of false doctrines floating around, and Constantine insisted that the church call a conference of all the bishops to deal with some of these doctrinal issues that were floating around. The council was held in the city of Nicaea, which is in Asia Minor, and it was called the Council of Nicaea. Mm-hmm. I don't know why this has been chosen as a as a Landmark. So landmark date, but the the authors who wrote before that Council of Nicaea in 325 are called the anti-Nicaean fathers. They weren't against it. It means that they, they were, were before, before it. anti yeah. the anti yeah. anti Nicaean yeah. fathers. Mm-hmm. They, that that word meaning before. Mm-hmm. Then there were some who wrote in that immediate time frame. They're called the Nicene Fathers. And then there were some who wrote later, and they usually uh, would, would include men who wrote clear up into the 800s A.D. And those are the post-Nicene okay. fathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would think that the, we're most interested in the anti-Nicene fathers. They were the ones who were closest to the apostolic age. Mm-hmm. Some of them, in fact, may have had contact with some of the apostles. Okay. For instance, Polycarp was one of the yeah. anti-Nicene fathers, and he, he might have had contact with some of the apostles. Some of the names, Polycarp, Tertullian, Ignatius, Origen. And Clement of Rome. These are men who wrote in that time period. Their writings are preserved, and therefore they 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 serve as a a resource. And so our question is, how could we use their resource most effectively? Uh, what positive uses could we get from them? Yep. And I think that we could list some positive things. Uh, uh, for instance. Um, these these writers, like I was saying, as they were writing, they they were obligated to prove what they wrote by quoting scripture to mm-hmm. support their conclusions. Right. Just like we do when we when we preach and teach and write today, uh, we typically want to include scripture, often a lot of scripture, to to show that what we're saying is true to the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And, and these fellows did that, uh, and so. 
they, as you said, Jacob, confirm the accurate conveyance of the scriptures to us today. So they wrote in the second century A.D., for instance. So within a hundred years of when the New Testament books were written. Now, all the original copies of the New Testament books are lost. Right. We don't have what they call the autograph copies right. that were written. The original. We have copies of them, but we don't have the originals. But we also have all these quotations of these guys who were quoting from those works very early on. And so, you know, we get this accusation that the, the New Testament text has been corrupted over 2,000 years. It's been copied and recopied and altered and added to and subtracted from so much. The, the, the false charge is made that we don't even really know what the original New Testament was like at all. Anybody who makes that accusation just doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. And one of the reasons why we know that we have accurate copies of the New Testament is because of the writings of these early church fathers. It has been said that if the New Testament were, to, if all copies of the New Testament were destroyed, it could be reconstructed by pulling the references out of the writings of the early church fathers. And wow. so, so that is a benefit. That's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, very good. So we would know very quickly that uh, the scriptures have been corrupted if they didn't line up with what these guys have been quoting back then, if there was some kind of discrepancy, but there's not. You can lay them on top of each other, and they're identical. So the discrepancy would have had to happen within less than 100 years because everything after that we know it lines up. up. Yeah. And so, again, it's, it's, it's a very uninformed accusation to say that we have corrupted copies of the Word of God because it's just not true. And anybody who says that, trying to discount the New Testament, is just an uninformed critic. The New Testament, the Bible in general, is the most well-documented book of antiquity, multitudes upon multitudes of times, uh, more documented than any other refer- any other work, and those works that are so relatively insignificantly documented people don't question them yeah there's absolutely no reason in the world why we should question the, the translation and the uh, or the uh, the transmission of the scriptures today exactly right exactly. all right we're going to take a break we'll get back we'll continue talking about some of the benefits of the early church fathers and we need to talk about some of the dangers as well of the early church fathers and and relying upon them and we'll look forward to your thoughts in the chat room uh during this break don't go anywhere the virtual bible study will continue right after this Did you hear what they just said? Call in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The virtual Bible study continues after this announcement. I'm Larry Raspberry, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a question for you. Do you believe in parachutes? I suppose you do. You believe they exist? But that's not what I mean. There's a difference between believing something or someone exists and putting your confidence in it or him. One who has seen a parachute knows they exist, but has never put his confidence in one. Trying one on while standing on the ground isn't faith either. Going up in a plane intending to jump out with a parachute on is not faith in the parachute either. Opening the door at the moment of truth and gazing outside to the ground is not faith either. It is only when one jumps out the door, counts to ten, and pulls the ripcord that he has actually put his faith in the parachute. Many of you believe parachutes exist, but only a few have actually put your faith in one. Many people in the world say they believe God exists, but only a few put their faith in him for salvation by doing what he says. We'd love to help you in developing a saving faith in God. If we can be of assistance, please contact us. 
Send an email to questions at collegeview.com or call us at 877-381-4567. And thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study. Here's some quotes worth pondering. We must all suffer from one of two pains, the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. The difference is discipline weighs ounces while regret weighs tons. Your daily life is the only true testimony of your religion. How you say it may well be as important as what you say. Allowing anger to seethe on the back burner will lead to a very large lid blowing off a very hot pot. If you want to stop an argument, close your mouth. Man, wish I'd said that. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. We're back on the program tonight, and I don't know, this. I guess this is sort of a sleepy topic because there's not a lot of chat in the chatter yeah. in the chat room. I don't know. It's not real controversial. We're not having a lot of, you know. I think it's really, it may not be too controversial. I, I, it would be if we were talking to some people like Ken yeah. Collins from yeah, a couple right, of weeks ago right. who believe that these are such authoritative uh, quotations. We're going to get to that here in a minute, but... Uh, again, we're talking about something that we could probably agree upon, that there is some positive use to these early and I church shouldn't have used the term sleepy because it is important, but it's yeah. just not controversial, I guess. It's so we not, talked it's about, not engendering a lot of discussion. That's okay. We talked about how these early quotations and writings of these church fathers could help us prove that our scriptures have been handed down accurately right. through the That's, through that's the one centuries. benefit, number one. That's a, that's Secondly, a, they reveal that the... New Testament documents were being circulated widely within their day. That is important. Yeah. You know, there were no printing presses. So every copy of the scripture had to be hand copied. That was difficult and expensive. So the the scriptures were hard to duplicate. Right. But this proves that they were being duplicated. I got a list here, Jacob, of, of some of these famous names of these early church writers. But they were dispersed all through the known world of that day. Clement was in Rome, Irenaeus was in France, Ignatius was in Syria, Tertullian was in Africa, Justin Martyr was in Ephesus, Polycarp was in Asia Minor. So they're going in lots of different directions. All over the known world of that day, and yet they had copies of the scriptures to refer to and copy from. Yeah. And so that just proves that, you know, there's this argument that's made that respect for the the books we have in our New Testament they weren't. It wasn't there initially. It wasn't for three or four hundred years before those writings began to be considered as special. Around the time of that Nicene Council, right? Yeah. But this proves that that's not the case. Right. Because these men were quoting extensively from those writings. They were quoting them. There had been great effort made to, to propagate them, and they were valued. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it wasn't something that somebody just put in a cave, and yeah. we found it thousands of years later. Exactly. Okay. So so that proves, again, the, the that... When, I've heard it said that the, the the works that are contained in our New Testament were regarded as Scripture before the ink dried on the page. It didn't take hundreds of years for them to get that uh, respect. They were respected immediately, and uh, I think this proves that. All right. Anthony's not commenting tonight because he's painting the bathroom. Well, <laughs> I hope uh, that uh, we can help you along with that, Anthony, while you listen to us. Yeah. And, uh and then, well, there's a different, there's a question here, a little bit off topic, but a good question. You want to go ahead and take that now, or uh, it's about churching, uh, churches singing old hymn songs. 
Uh, uh, let's hang on to that. Right. That's kind of off topic. Yeah, but we'll, we, do, we'll get that at the bottom of the hour here. Or, we'll that or, we'll, or we'll make it a point to talk about yeah. songs. And right. I, that might be, you know, that might be a worthy topic for another program is talk about the songs we sing. Okay. All right. Let's, let's All hang right. on to that. Guest uh, 121, hang on <clears> to that. <throat> I think that's a good question. And, uh, we, we will, uh, we will spend some time with that, but not, if not tonight, coming up real soon. And I guess 2836 has another topic, a, a question, slightly off topic, but similar to what we've been talking about. Uh, more concerned about the amount of current translations, okay. the number of current translations. And uh, we've got a past program in the Virtual Bible Study uh, that we did on Bible translations. You okay. might look might in, look our, that archive, up look in well. our archives and see if there's something Certainly there that Certainly there help. are translations that are not accurate and not valid. But there are many good ones. And so, uh, But Jim Walsh uh, was with us on that program with me on that program. I don't think you were there I that night, And uh, he'd done a lot of study on that. And uh, I think we, we did a pretty good coverage of some of those translations and which ones to look for and which ones to avoid. 2836, you might check that out in the archives. Appreciate that question. All right. So we've talked about the the benefit of these writings of the early church fathers. Um, I got a, a, another couple things to mention. One benefit is that these writings of these early church fathers show us, they document, in fact, the early stages of a great apostasy that took place in the church. When we talk about an apostasy, we talk about a falling away. And you know, even within the lifetime of the apostles, it had been warned that there would be a great falling away. Yes. Uh, when Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, beginning verse 28, he said, Take heed therefore to yourselves, to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Paul knew that shortly after he left there, there would begin to be a departure from the faith. Yes, right. And so he he wasn't saying, I'm afraid in three, four, five hundred years from now, there's going to be a problem. He says, just as soon as I leave, I fear that there will be some who will leave the faith. And so we see... That happening as we read, we can see some of that departure. Even in the earliest writings of these men, we can see that. I want to reference some of them in a minute. Uh, but a couple other, a couple other warnings from scripture. Second Thessalonians 2, beginning verse 1. We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Wow. Yeah, well, some were circulating letters in, in Paul's century. lifetime. Yeah, Co- fake letters, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, suggesting that they were from Paul and they weren't. Yeah, and so Paul was dealing with some of this in his lifetime. So if we have, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but if we have church writers that are contemporary with the apostles, we would have to be on guard about what they were saying based upon Second Thessalonians chapter two. Exactly right. Okay, First uh, Timothy four, beginning verse one. The Spirit, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the later times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. Paul even mentioned what some of that would be. There would be a, a, a movement to forbid certain ones to marry. There would be a movement to forbid the eating of certain kinds of meats. These things were Paul knew were in the works already. And then one more, his famous charge to the evangelist Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, beginning verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. 
Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Paul said, Timothy, you're going to have to be on guard because there's already a tendency. These people don't want to hear sound doctrine. And they're looking for teachers who will tickle their ears. Yeah. You're going to have to, you're going to have to endure, uh, um, you're going to have to, uh, be sure to maintain the faith and, and continue to do your work faithfully is what he is telling Timothy. So, Paul was warning about this departure from the faith. And these early church fathers proved that what he was worried about, what he was, was warning happening. about, became it came quickly. Yes. Uh, here, here's a few examples of that. In the middle of the second century, a early church writer, one of the so-called early church fathers, a fellow by the name of Cyprian, was suggesting that sprinkling could be substituted for immersion wow. in baptism. So we're talking about 100 years or so yeah. after. Yep. Uh, when we talked to Ken Collins a couple of weeks ago, he he referenced a document called the Didache several times in that. I don't know if you remember him. Several times in that discussion yes. with him, he mentioned the Didache. Well, the Didache, that word just means doctrine or teaching. Supposedly, the, they don't even know who the author of this document is. Uh-huh. And they don't know when it was written. Some want to suggest that it was written late in the first century A.D., mm-hmm. uh, I don't, that's not provable, but some say it was sort of like a handbook for churches, how you do your business. Yeah. Some even want to say that it may have been written by some of the apostles. All of that is unprovable. But in this Didache, uh, it was also suggesting that you can sprinkle in substitution for immersion. Uh, Irenaeus argued in favor of infant baptism in the late second century. Um uh, Tertullian opposed infant baptism, uh, but he accommodated it. And so uh, you, you see that there there was this apostasy beginning to take place quickly after the apostolic age. And, and so the early church fathers show us that, that that was taking place and would warn us to be on guard against those who would pervert the, the doctrine of Christ. Yeah. All right, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeu.com. Certainly, uh, we can see fulfillment of the scriptures in this departure. You're talking about 100 years. <clears throat> lots of uh, lots of heresy and false teaching can be uh, can be incubated in 100 years' time. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not, unli- it's not unheard of or an impossibility to think that there could be a lot of false teaching. You know, 100 teaching. years is a long time. You it think is. 100 years... <clears throat> From right now would have been back in 1915. Yeah, World War One era. Yeah, lots of things change have changed in a hundred years since well, uh, 1915. Think about ten or fifteen years in the religious world today in the acceptance of homosexuality and divorce and remarriage. Yeah, thirty years ago you'd had many denominations who were standing against unscriptural divorce and remarriage, and now there's nothing. There's they've no stand on that. They've caved on all. And, those and then homosexuality. I mean, this this wave in the last two or three years, and so. To say, well, the church fathers said that, it must be right. A hundred years after the fact, no, it, it doesn't have to be right. Exactly right. One more thing uh, that I would say is, is what we might glean positively from the writings of the church fathers is 
that uh, you can document how the organization and the government of the church was beginning to be corrupted quickly. We know that the New Testament teaches elders in every church, Acts 14.28, and that the, that the rule or authority of elders is limited to their immediate congregation, 1 Peter 5, verse 3. But uh, corruptions in church government became, came quickly. Ignatius of Antioch was referred, referred to himself as the bishop of Syria. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, he, and he lived in the late 1st century. So early in the 2nd century... He was referring to himself as the bishop of the whole country of Syria. Yeah. Obvious quick perversion and corruption in church government. Wow. Um, Cyprian was designated himself as the bishop of the church, the bishop of the church in Carthage. Uh, and so you begin to see uh, the changes that ultimately would have resulted in the hierarchical, hierarchy government of yeah. The Catholic Church. All and right. it was happening. It was happening. And these these writers document that. Now, that's not a good thing. What they were documenting wasn't a good thing, but at least we see it, and we see how it crept in quickly after the apostolic So we, it helps us to understand how do we get to where we are today. We can see that migration away from the truth, how it happened over time and where it led. Yeah. All right. We'll take a break and get our bullet point for the week. When we get back, we need to quickly talk about some of the negative uses. We sort of touched on some of them already of the church fathers, and then we need to get to this, uh, the, the topic of the special preaching and teaching events, and uh, we'll touch on uh, Guest 121 on uh, that question about the songs. So uh, we'll take a break, and we'll get your comments on the side. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The Virtual Bible Study will be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. Many of our brethren have dropped the practice of saying amen at the end of prayers or when they agree with what has been said from the pulpit. However, we note that saying amen is an altogether scriptural thing to do. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul mentions it. In this context, he was dealing with the use of spiritual gifts in the worship of the church at Corinth. Specifically, he argued that speaking in unknown tongues should be limited to occasions when an interpreter was available. See verses 27 and 28. Unless this rule was observed, it resulted in chaos with no one knowing or understanding what was being said. Under those conditions, it would not be possible for others to, quote, say amen at thy giving of thanks, unquote, verse 16. While the miraculous spiritual gifts have ceased, this teaching about the use of the amen still has application. Amen is from a Hebrew word that has been transliterated into both Greek and English. When spoken by men, it literally means, quote, so let it be, unquote. Speaking the word at the end of a prayer simply expresses the desire of the one praying that these things come to pass, and others then show a similar desire by adding their amen to what has been said. According to W.E. Vine, the Greek construction in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 16, shows that this was a common practice in the New Testament church. Several factors obviously come into play in this matter. First, the prayer must be spoken loudly enough and plainly enough to be both heard and understood. The thoughts expressed must also be scriptural in content. And we should listen closely so that we may be sure that we agree with what has been said before adding our amen. The same rules would hold true regarding things spoken from the pulpit. Caution ought to be used so that this never becomes a thing done by habit or ritual and without meaning. Brethren have historically added their amen to the scriptural prayers of others and when the preacher spoke, quote, as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4, verse 11. We can and should do the same. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. My name is Alex Dvorak, reminding you to listen to the Virtual Bible Study every Thursday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. 
Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. And we're back on the program tonight. Reminding you, this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ at Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. You may be listening to the podcast feed and may have never been to our website. It is thevirtualbiblestudy.com. And if you are listening to the podcast feed, let us know that you're out there. I heard from Brad in Alabama. And I goofed on the podcast last week, and he couldn't get it. So i got to fix that tonight. Oh, it's still messed up? It's messed up. And so thank you, Brad, for that feedback. And if you have questions about the podcast or technical difficulties, we want to hear those as well. Or if you just uh, are listening and have questions about what we believe, maybe you disagree with something we said, send us an email, questions at collegeview.com. As we talk about early church fathers on the program tonight, we're going to get to a topic of special events uh, at, in the church, so we'll get to that in just a minute. But early church fathers. Okay, uh, we got an email from our friend James from South Africa, but he's in the United States currently, but he preaches in South Africa, and he was on our program a few weeks ago. He said, how can we use these writings of the early church fathers in a positive way? He says, we gain some insight into how they interpreted Scripture, and that can be interesting since they were closer to the apostles. It can also be instructive to see what issues they dealt with and how they resolved those issues. Thank you for that, James. And Jim in Kentucky says they can be used in a positive way by showing us how practices developed. They tell us what they did, but not necessarily why they did it that way. They can be used to confirm what the Scriptures already authorized, but again, simply an uninspired testimony. Okay. I think those guys are right, and along the same lines of what we were observing. Jim also adds, you're right, they were not inspired, so we should treat them as we treat any uninspired writings. Exactly right. Um, let's talk about the negative uses, because, uh, again, what prompted this this little uh, consideration of the early church fathers was the frequent reference that our interviewee, Ken Collins had a couple weeks ago. He was constantly making reference. This is okay because the early church fathers said it was okay. Yeah. So we want to talk about these early church fathers. And some the downside of using these things, one is to try and use them as an authoritative source, viewing these writings as if they were inspired. They were not. Uh, the Catholic Church effectively does regard the writings of these early church fathers as inspired writings. Here's a quote they from. They also regard the latter church fathers' writings as being inspired. But. Here's a quote from the Catholic Dictionary uh, by an, from an author named Donald Atwater. He said the Roman Church treats many of these documents as if they were inspired by God. Tradition, they say, quote, quote, tradition is a source of theological teaching distinct from the Scripture and is infallible. So you get that. The Catholic Church is saying these are infallible. They were not infallible. They were not inspired. And so one of the dangers that we want to really stress is we cannot be regarding these as inspired documents. They're not on a par with the writings of Paul and Peter and Matthew and Mark and Luke. They're just not. And it'd be a huge mistake to say so. Actually, if you said so, you would have inspired writings contradicting other inspired writings. These are not inspired. They should not be considered that way. Okay. Secondly, uh, and of course, closely associated with that first point is it's a big mistake to regard these things, these writings as authoritative in establishing doctrinal practice. Um, here's a quote from uh, the Question Box, which is a Catholic Church publication, an author by the name of Bertrand Conway. Uh, you're going to see that when a Catholic scholar 
can't sustain his doctrinal position using the Bible, what are you going to do? Is he going to turn to the church fathers and quote them? And here's what he did. Bertrand Conway, a Catholic church author in the question box, cited Irenaeus in an effort to prove Catholic dogma of apostolic succession. Yeah. You know, the Catholics say there's been a pope ever since Peter, and you can an unbroken chain of succession, apostolic succession. Uh, the he's he goes on to say the post-apostolic writers were not inspired. Uh, no, no, no. The problem with that, of course, is that post-apostolic writers were not inspired, and they didn't even claim to be Jacob. These these guys did not claim to be inspired, uh, and they frequently contradict one another, and they contradict the Bible. They clearly not inspired. So to use them as an authoritative source to try and establish a doctrinal position is a big mistake, a yep. danger we got to avoid. Yeah, you know, and it, this is a pervasive thought in the denominational world today, the, the heavy, effort, uh, uh, heavy, heavy emphasis on church fathers and tradition. I believe it is the Episcopal Church that has the three-legged stool yeah. to determine their doctrine. Yeah. And you know what? It is scripture, reason, and tradition. Yeah. And so... Scripture is just one of three ways. It no is, more important than what you think. No, what your I think own or my or the tradition. And yeah. so that tells you how little emphasis there is placed on Scripture. Yeah. And, and it's pervasive in the denominational world, and we need to be aware of it. I think you're exactly right. And finally, I would say a danger we've got to avoid, trying to prove our own pet opinions by quoting. Or, you know, I've got, my, I got this idea. i got this theory. I wonder if I can find an early church writer who had the same idea I have. Yeah. Who, who would who would endorse my pet? And somehow it's like you got you know, I got somebody on your L- side. Look at me. Yeah. 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 Um, if you have to appeal to uninspired writers to prove your case, then you're you're pretty well yielding the fact that you can't prove it from the scriptures, and you've yeah. kind of given up. And yeah. and so uh, that would be a danger uh, of using these writings in that way. Yeah. All right. Uh, Jim in Kentucky mentions some of the dangers. He says uh, the potential dangers are many. One is simply thinking that if they mention something, then that is authority for that thing, such as metropolitan elders or having only one elder per congregation, etc. Another problem is to take them separate from Scripture or even instead of Scripture to allow their writings to interpret the Scripture for us. We should see their writings as nothing more than a commentary. One should not consider the church fathers as any different than Campbell, McGarvey, Shepard, Turner, etc. I think that's right. We do, I, I, you know, most of us have reference books, uh, yeah. a library of reference yeah. books. Well, those reference books were written by uninspired men. They may be helpful to us, and they might help us see something, uh, understand something in Scripture that we're studying, but they're not authoritative. And you can't say, well, because Alexander Campbell said this, it is true, yeah. or because J.W. McGarvey said this, it is therefore absolutely right. Right not the case they're uninspired men those were more recent writers but the same thing would be true of these early church writers they're uninspired men therefore what they write certainly can be and often is flawed james says the apostles warned of encroaching error and false teaching paul warned the ephesians of it in acts 20 verse 29 john said it was already coming first john verse 4 or first john chapter 4 and peter said it was already present second peter chapter 2 so some and perhaps the majority of these men might be included in these warnings. All right. So I think that those are right uh, observations. Thank you and, for those comments. And I, I hope that just sort of dealing with that, Jacob, is helpful. I felt it was important to do that because of, as I said, our, our recent interview with King Collins in which he was 
putting so much confidence in what the early church fathers wrote. I, several years ago, I studied with a couple of men uh, who were very knowledgeable in, and and could quote extensively from the early church fathers. Yeah. Uh, you, you try to make a Bible point with them, and they just disregard it because they had this quote from the early church fathers that said otherwise. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 was, it was very frustrating, and but it but it was it, it proves the point we're making tonight. You put your confidence in that, you're not going to be doing what the Bible says. You, so you reemphasize that we need to be reading more of our Bible rather than the church fathers. Exactly right. Uh, well, quick, we're, we're ready to change topics, but quickly, 121 guest uh, said, why do some churches of Christ use the old hymn songs in church and some sing more modern songs? Is it modern, are, are modern Christian songs wrong? No, they're not wrong. Yeah, uh, I think I think Anthony, both Anthony and Jeff, Jeff's running our board tonight, but both Anthony and Jeff, I think, gave the right answer. As long as the song, Anthony said, as long as the song does not contain scriptural error, there's nothing wrong with it. Some songs may not be sung just because they're not pleasing to the ear. Yep. Jeff said it's a matter of preference. As yep. long as it follows what we find in the scriptures, we can use it. And I think that's the right answer. It is a matter of preference. I think there, I think, I think there are some other considerations rather than just does it teach scriptural. Is it accurate scripturally? It has to be an edifying song. Yeah, I mean, there are some songs that are written in such a way that wouldn't be edifying for us to sing just because maybe musically we couldn't pull it off. Maybe it's scriptural in its context, but it would just maybe not edifying. Yeah. Let's, I think that's an interesting topic that a lot of people are interested in. Let's make that a point, Jacob, to yeah. talk about that in an upcoming Let's edition. Let's do that. That would be good. But, yeah, good comments, and so maybe that helps 121 guests. But, uh, yeah, stay tuned for future uh, episode on that hopefully all right we'll take let's well, go take a break you think yeah, yeah let's go ahead and take a break a little bit early tackle this one in 15 minutes special preaching and teaching events yeah what we're ta- yeah we'll have to identify what we mean but we will when we get back we'll take a break and go on the other side don't go anywhere we're back right after this don't touch that mouse the virtual bible study will be back right after this this is Stephen Nicholson, a member of the College View Church of Christ, and I want to invite you to be a regular participant on the virtual Bible study. Your input by way of emails and phone calls are always welcome during the live program. We're also open to your suggestions about possible topics for discussion on upcoming editions of the program. We'd love to hear from you anytime. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. A United Kingdom study looked at more than 5,000 15-year-olds and found that those with the highest level of exposure to alcohol use in films were 25% more likely to have tried drinking alcohol and were 74% more likely to have participated in binge drinking than their peers who were not exposed to these films. That information is via dailyrx.com. The Word of God says in Proverbs 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians three seventeen. Now, back to the program. Back on the program tonight as we talk. We've concluded a subject uh, discussion of early church fathers. We're on to special events now. Explain what you're talking about here because you're saying okay. we need to talk about these it, special events. Here's the question that I sent out concerning special preaching and teaching events for specific groups within church. Teens, women, young marrieds, so forth. What are some of the positive outcomes that might be achieved, and what are some of the potential negative effects? Uh, I think Jim from Kentucky wrote in and said, "Well, I guess you're, surely you're not talking about uh, Bible classes," and and I'm not because we have used in the church, we have used for a long time, 
age and gender specific Bible classes as an expedient means of teaching scripture. In other words, uh, when we meet on Sunday morning here at College View and on Wednesday night, we divide the classes up into age appropriate groupings. Sometimes we have no, been known to separate, for instance, teenage girls from teenage boys so that certain topics might be addressed more effectively there. And we understand that that's, uh, that's not a bad thing. And, yeah. and, and, and we're not, we're not, we're not, that's really not what I had in mind. I, no. I had in mind more of the kind of things that I, I think we're seeing a, a big increase in the frequency of uh, special ladies days or uh, youth forums or uh, singles devotionals, that sort of thing. 25 or 30 years ago, we didn't see any of that. And now we're seeing it with a lot more frequency. And I'm just and wondering, it, just, this is just really, just, this is just a point for conversation. I'm, I'm seeking feedback here. Is, is, is this all good or are there some things we ought to be on guard? So you're not going to come down strong on one side of the fence. No, I'm not, I'm not no, on a no. campaign and, here at and all. And just because it didn't happen 30 years ago doesn't mean it's wrong. Right, we have to remember that. Yeah. But you didn't. I mean, you didn't see that. Now, yeah, and some of it, uh, you some of it, maybe you could question the motives. Yeah, uh, you know, is the single Bible study? Is it really about the Bible study, or is it about all the other single people that are there? Yeah, you have to wonder about that. But uh, what, what's the motivation for it? Yeah. No. In other words, um, I, I think one of the things that we need to to be uh, on guard about <clears throat> is leaving the impression that certain topics can only be addressed uh, in in that venue. Oh, right. We can't talk about maintaining moral purity unless we get all the young people together to talk about well, it. Well, well, that's right. Uh, I, I'm a grandfather, but I want to hear the lessons that are designed for teenagers. Yeah. And I want to be there in support of the lessons that are being preached to the teenagers. Yeah. Now, in other words... Uh, just because I'm not a teenager anymore doesn't mean that I'm not interested in the lessons that are designed for teenagers and that I want to hear them and I want to, I want to endorse them uh, by being present and, and as our bullet point talked about a minute ago, lending my amen to there the scriptural go. truths there that you. are taught. Well, and it also could indicate that, that we're somehow isolated, that the teenagers are you're dealing with, you know, you're, you're sort of in a class by yourself and you don't deal with the same things that everybody else deals with. But in, in reality, we're all dealing with similar struggles. And so, you could, it could sort of develop this idea of an ice, you know, I'm not, we're the well, only ones that understand what we're going through. Kind yeah. of thing. But, but, you know, and this reflects another, I think, cultural change. In, in past generations, young people gained wisdom by sitting at the feet of elderly people and simply hearing them converse. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I remember as a young man, I really liked to sit around and hear older folks in the church, especially yeah. older preachers, right. talk. I mean, their stories were just enthralling. Yeah. But today, I th- I'm again, and maybe because I'm just a grouchy old man. Well, yeah, but, well, but, well, but, well. but I, I don't nope. see young people having an interest right. in the older folks. In the older folks. Paying I mean, attention to hear what the older folks have to say. It seems like we're almost becoming isolated groups, even within the church. Yeah, I, I agree. And I don't, think that's, I don't think that's a good thing. No, I don't. But, and I'm not saying it's pervasive, but I do see some indication of it. No, because I mean, you developed into the person you are today by modeling lots of influences, those, older, those right. older faithful men. men lots of influences, women, yeah. but the influence of older people was a valuable one to me and yeah. I think still serves as a value. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, there's, some, there's some dangers. Jeff, you, uh, you've been a part of these studies. I, mean, I think you've had some positive experiences, so what would be some positive things that you've seen, Jeff? 
Well, um, I would I, I would agree some with uh, Mr. Greg that you know we shouldn't you know make it to where it divides people, and I feel like the studies that I've been to have they've they've put to where there's times where it's just uh, gender some uh, subject specific, but they also like the whole congregation is there for for singings and Bible studies as well. Um, it's really uplifting. Um, uh, talking as a young person, when you're going to a right. place, right. like I went about two weeks ago to one. Yeah. And when you see all, sometimes you feel like you're alone in a in that college age, that weird twenties, yeah, um, early teens. Um, it's always it's nice to you know see others that are going through that and yeah. enjoy studying. I mean, it just yeah. it gives you some. I think, and I think that's the that's the that's the upside of it, because it is good to know that there are other young people, uh, you know. Because a lot of times in in a smaller congregation, for instance, it's not uh, if you if you were a member of a congregation that only had, you know, forty or fifty members, and and there might only be two or three teenagers in that whole group. Yeah. Now, thankfully, we are a larger number, and, and we have more young people. But especially if you were in a small group. Where you didn't have many teen peers right. as Christians trying to live faithfully for God in a wicked world, yeah. it, it would be a big encouragement to be around other Christian teens who are trying to do the same thing. So I think that would be on the upside of having these kind of events. But again, having said that, I see a, I see a trend that I don't like in regards to just. Uh, Regular church meetings and gospel meetings, uh, where, you know, teens will flock to a teen devotional and they'll drive hours in order to be in attendance and they won't drive across town to go to a gospel meeting yeah. just to hear good old gospel preaching. Yeah. And if that's the outcome of this, if that is one of the fruits of this, then I think that's a bad fruit. Yeah. I mean, we ought to be. We certainly we can be encouraged by those teen devotional weekends, yeah. but we need to be encouraged to be with the yeah. church as a whole. How about the older folks at the gospel meeting that would be incredibly encouraged if a group of young people were to attend the meeting and, and show that they were interested in spiritual things? How about the benefit for the older folks? We, we may we may give the impression, we may walk away. I mean, some of our young people may walk away with the impression that. Regular church assemblies are old-fashioned and out of date, and and you know th- these newer approaches are the way to go exclusively. And I don't think we want to do that. And Anthony summarizes it well. He says, as with any judgment call, we have to be careful that we have the right motive and that we keep focus on studying the Bible. Separate events or classes can be very beneficial. Uh, for example, women are much more likely to speak out in a women's class. And so Anthony makes good comments here. It's, it's, it is a judgment call. Make sure that your motivation is right, and uh, and then make your judgment accordingly. And there are some time, things that would be beneficial. Uh, you you probably wouldn't get a lot of discussion, maybe, uh, on certain subjects in a mixed audience, maybe. Uh, so maybe if you did have separate for that, you could get some more interaction and comments. Jeff? Um, I've heard both, uh, both Mr. Greg, I think, and uh, Anthony on here talks about the motives. I believe that's the bottom of the problem. If if people are going to these young adult studies and they're not going to a gospel meeting where you're getting the same benefits, um, I do believe that's a problem. Right. Um, it, it, it is difficult sometimes, and some people are not as committed to this as others. Right, right. 
Anthony goes on. He says, I think the problem you're mentioning may be more in the individual's heart or a problem yeah, in the so. family, not placing enough emphasis on spiritual things at home. I think that's right. Okay. I think that's right. And, okay. and I do think this is a judgment call. It is a judgment call. Uh, and so let us know some of your thoughts in the chat room if you'd like to sign in there. What about this idea of special meetings? Good things, bad things? What things should we evolve to? I mean, it is a growing trend, and so we ought to at least consider it and maybe be aware of certain pitfalls that we want to avoid. Yeah. Uh, James uh, from South Africa says there are specific age specific, gender-specific, and group-specific topics worth teaching about that might not be as relevant to others. Also, such topics might be attractive to the people who would not normally come to hear biblical teaching. Now, there's a, there's a possible, possible upside. In other words, if we had a, a, a service specially dedicated to dealing with teen issues, we could use that as an outreach uh, tool. You know, maybe we could draw teens in who wouldn't normally come to hear Bible preaching at all. So that, that might be, that might be you know, a positive of this yeah. sort of a thing. Yeah, right. Okay. Yep. Uh, but I, I would I would quibble a little bit with the idea that where James says some topics might not be as relevant to uh, to all. There is one faith, Ephesians four verse four. Yeah, and we need to hear it all. Yeah. I mean, and it's all relevant to us. And now, in, yep. in other words, I'm not a teenager, obviously, but I ought to be concerned about things that pertain to teenagers. You know, and I want, I ought to want to hear them, learn them, be able to teach them. Uh, but the one, the one danger is that it leaves, leads to the impression that you're not going to be able to figure out how you should live as a teenager unless there's a special service about it. Yeah. And you learn how to be a teenager. You learn how to be a middle aged and an elderly person by the teaching of the gospel. The whole gospel. The whole gospel. Yeah. Every Sunday and Wednesday and yeah. the gospel meeting and so forth. So it, it sort of, gets us into the idea that, well, I've got to have something specifically about this issue. I can't just take a principle and apply it to what I'm going through today. Yeah. On the other hand, I mean, I mean, this is a two-edged thing. On the other hand, spending special time working with teens on special problems that pertain to teens is not a bad thing. Yeah. And so, again... Uh, I think all all sides that got to be taken. Into I think Jeff, you're going to one in a couple of weeks about um, the society that we live in and being right. aware of how society is. It's the illusion that a culture uh, unmasking the illusions of culture. Yeah, so that it, certain things are acceptable and certain things are not. But maybe specific pressures of young people. So I mean, there are there, certainly uh, that sounds like something to be very beneficial. Uh, so okay, um, Jim and. Kentucky says, I'm, uh, uh, he says, if we're talking about special classes such as many gospel meetings designed only for a particular group, is this proper? Can we find authority to provide for only one portion of the church to the exclusion of other members? He says, I have some questions about that. Uh, I, I, I don't, and no, as someone accurately pointed out, we've, we've had these, these age, Specific and even sometimes gender specific Bible classes before. So I mean, if we're asking for authority, we may have. You know, and by the way, there is a, a, a in our archives we did a virtual Bible study program on the authority to have Bible classes, and I think they are authorized. And so that's that that is in itself a dividing of the of groups. Yeah, we understand there's some value to that. No, no doubt about that. Uh, James from South Africa says. Uh, we might be the the potential danger. He said we might be tempted to cater to a specific age group, such as only to the youth, and they become overemphasized. 
Also, it might lead us to think that some topics such as doctrinal questions and issues are only for certain groups such as older men, when in fact such topics are relevant for Christians of all ages. I think that's a point I would like to stress in this. When we have these youth weekends or youth devotionals, do they ever deal with what's wrong with instrumental music? Yeah. No. I've never seen one that deals with uh, oh, do, do they? Uh, what must I do to be saved? Uh, the errors of Calvinism. You know, no, they're always dealing with teen topics. Yeah. Well, teen topics are fine, but the teens need to learn this other stuff too. Yeah. So yeah, that could. could I think the, that, that is a, so James is right. It could lead the impression. Well, you don't have to worry about that because you're a teenager. Yeah. 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 Okay. So again, I, I, I think it's very much in the realm of judgment. But, yeah. Fair, judgment. But I, I, I think we want to be careful. Not to go too too far down a path that that ends up getting us where we don't. Without thinking, we think about just just think about the potential dangers. Yeah, yeah. Jeff. We always have to be careful when we're doing um, stuff. Um, the motives, as we talked about before, they can easily change. Um, I mean, there's there's places that are using money in the wrong way to yeah. promote these. Yeah. Um, but I I, I would. I, I usually check this stuff out, and I would advise anybody if they're to, doing good, it good to point, check that Jeff. out as well. Good point, Jeff. We don't want to promote something like that where they're tr- maybe trying to spread the gospel, but they may be doing it in an inappropriate way. And right. I, I, but I, I, yeah, I think you're exactly right. But I would also just reiterate what I just said. I'd love to see an announcement for one of these teen weekends, and it just be full of doctrinal lessons. What's wrong with instrumental music? Uh, what is the gospel plan of salvation? You know. Uh, I, I've heard some young people in the church who are not sound on instrumental music, for instance. They don't know why it's it, it's uh, unscriptural to use instruments of music in the worship of God in the, in the New right. Testament era. Right. So I'm just saying, let's not overemphasize one thing to the neglect of other things. Yeah. It is a judgment, and so you leave it there. But just be aware and think about think about what you're doing, and think about the potential messages it could send and the potential dangers that could come. So, all right, good discussion tonight. More to talk about than I thought we might have. Paul uh, in the chat says, "I've been very interested in trying to get the older and younger to interact. It's mutually beneficial. I'm not opposed to occasional focused studies, but would encourage also the building of relationships and appreciation among those of diverse age groups." Amen, Paul. And, and Paul I'm, I'm right with you on that. I do, I do. Maybe Paul's seeing the same thing that we're seeing. It does seem like that trend is towards segregation. You know, I, I don't know. It, uh, it does. It leaves you wondering. And we got a message from 826, who's obviously in Texas, say, more storms, pray for us. While they've been listening to the virtual Bible study there, NOAA Weather Radio has been on the whole time with warnings and updates. So we do have a lot of friends and brethren in Texas, and we hope they do well in all that bad flooding, and in Oklahoma as well. Yeah, okay. Um, they might want to read Genesis chapter 6 and start building something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. But, but it's been real bad down there. We had we know a little bit what they're dealing with. We had similar floods back in 2010 here in Middle Tennessee. Yeah, okay. Well, all right. Well, uh, thank you for listening. Appreciate uh, 826 listening to us in the midst of those storms, and, uh, and hopefully the, everything will be okay down there. And thank you. Dad, for your time. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you, Jeff, for joining us and for your comments. Thank you for listening. Hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. Hey, we had a normal program in May of 2015. Hey, I think we did. I don't think, and no, no apparent glitches. No apparent glitches. And now if we can get the podcast up right, we're, we're well, good to go. We'll finish up the month strong, and we'll look forward to being with you in June and uh, getting closer to that 10-year 
anniversary. Exactly right. Uh, so we'll look forward to that. So don't go anywhere. Be planning to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.